Capitalism is by nature a form or method of economic change and not only never is, but never can be, stationary. The fundamental impulse that sets and keeps the capitalist engine in motion comes from the new consumer's goods, the new methods of production or transportation, the new markets, the new forms of industrial organisation that capitalist enterprises enterprise creates. The opening up of new markets, foreign or domestic, and the organisational development from the craft shop and factory to such concerns as US steel illustrate the process of industrial mutation that incessantly revolutionises the economic structure from within, incessantly destroying the old one, incessantly creating a new one. This process of creative destruction is the essential fact about capitalism. So that's a quote from the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter's 1942 book Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And I'm John Fanning and this is the Create with John Fanning podcast. How's it going? I uh, hope you're all doing well out there. Uh, this is episode 14 of my series of episodes in imagination and thus creativity uh, based around my book Create. Last time I spoke about the walls of ageism and retirement, but today I want to talk about one of the greatest walls to the imagination. It is capitalism. So this episode is going to take a be, or it's going to be at least uh, twice the normal length I try to put out because of the nature of the subject. You know this battle between authenticity and this hyper capitalist global reality we find ourselves living in and how it affects the imagination and creativity in so many different ways and because i will not be able to get it to be under an hour i've left it to be the last wall episode before uh, heading into you know the second half of this podcast the doors towards the imagination so uh, i'd like to start with five years after working in a coffee shop in Manhattan um, I took another creative leap this time with my wife Kerry to the Black Mountains in the south of France and I've referenced this creation of a retreat many times in the podcast and but I've never um, mentioned it or talked about it from a from a capitalist perspective so we created a place for people like us whose first priority uh, is or was to honor the need to create and so we started La Muse to create uh, an affordable and beautiful and inspiring comfortable place for creators and emphasis on the first word affordable um, because you know it's very difficult to find places where you can go to create where it's not you know costing a, a small fortune to get there and to, you know stay there so um we didn't understand people wouldn't come if we didn't charge regular prices we were very naive 
and you know we thought they'd come because we were offering a really cheap prices uh, but that's not the way we've been or that's not the way people operate in a capitalist society you know we're conditioned to see the world from a different lens so people didn't come and we were told later on that they thought it was a scam or that it was too good to be true and even later on again a, a kiwi friend of mine um who managed a, a hyatt hotel explained to us how each room had to have a different price because people need to assign value different forms of value that capitalist word value uh to what they're buying you know um even the idea of buying a room we could never even see it like that you know but you know we had to learn and he gave the example of it, the hotel that he managed uh, how they only rented the presidential suite maybe once or twice a year and that seems like an immense you know waste of space and stuff for such a huge room uh considering it was empty for the whole rest of the year but as he said it didn't matter because those two bookings took care of all the fixed costs for the year for the hotel again another thing we didn't understand were fixed costs so uh, on his advice we raised our prices and changed them to you know reflect the different types of rooms even though we wanted to keep them uh, as low as we could to get creators who you know couldn't afford to be there they're still able to come and of course then people started coming creators started coming so that was our first lesson in living in a capitalist world uh, even from the perspective of creators we're just completely swarmed and surrounded by this this ideology this this systemic this system so it's kind of like when i talked about camden town or the east village you know both those places like before mtv moved into camden town or before the east village became a gentrified we move um those places were very full of creative people uh artists and you know um the creative classes and you know it's the same when we moved to the ode uh in the south of france which is kind of considered i suppose a cinderella of france um creative people uh moved there um just like they did to Camden Town and the East Village. Um, so creative people discover places before developers do uh, because, and it's a signal for developers that they see a lot of artists around, well, they know that their place is starting to change because uh, for creators, living creatively is the motivation, uh, finding a nice space, not the status or wealth of the people surrounding you in that space so if they can find somewhere cheap to create then they'll go there and it's only afterwards that it becomes gentrified so creators are marginalized in in this predominantly capitalist society and they often cross paths in places uh, they've discovered and nurtured um, before they become you know discovered by those with capital um, so you only have to look at certain urban zip codes here in the US uh, with seemingly minimal potential to gentrify and you'll find a high concentration of artists usually or those people that are different um, who are looking for different places to live that are cheap so that they can go and create so 
Another part of the whole Amuse story is how when we started out, we, we started with credit cards. Uh, you know, nearly 20 years ago, that's how how we did it. Uh, we couldn't find money. Nobody wanted to give us it. You know, when you're starting something different or new, nobody wants to give you money unless you have a proven track record. You know, if you've proven that you've made capital work, uh, because that's the capitalist mentality. It's through percentages. And, you know, we couldn't find So we, we had to be creative. Uh, so this is often the reality when someone starts to create something different. Uh, where do you get the money? When most of the capital is oftentimes owned by rather, and not all, you know, this is a generalization, but an unimaginative few who are given their capital instead of creating it. And, you know, if you're given something, you don't have to be creative about trying to grow or evolve something. And so it's like people who start out and create these companies and stuff, they're extraordinarily creative people um, because they started off on their own. And, you know, there's a lot of them out there. But when you think about um, the world and how it really, uh, who has the, this this wealth, um, just the idea that, you know, eight people, I couldn't believe it when I heard it first, that, you know, these eight people are these, control the same wealth as, as basically 50% of the planet, or that the world's richest 1% are on course to basically control as much as two-thirds of the world's wealth by 2030. So it's it's a reality we have to be very aware of, uh, how difficult it is to function within it if you want to try and be creative. So, for example, here where I'm living right now in America, the country has socialism for the rich and a kind of cold, harsh capitalism for everyone else. And that's not just me uh, talking out me posterior, you know. They're not my words. That's that's the former United States Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, um, who's very uh, ampl- amplifies this, this message a lot, especially under recent years. So if you ask most people what socialism is here, they actually get really anxious and think you're talking about even at very educated people they think you're talking about some kind of failed form of soviet communism or something um and then if you start going on about how 58 uh companies um uh, basically pay like the biggest companies these billion dollar companies they're basically they're not even in america you know amazon or chevron or, it's the same in france you know you'll have something like total who's supposed to be you know, giving all their tax money back to France, and they don't, you know, it's like they're in a different country, they don't pay any taxes. So Amazon and Chevron are classic examples of of uh, that here, are 58 other billion-dollar companies paying no taxes. And one of the biggest, um, longest uh, critics of, long, long-time long critics of this for decades now is a American academic called Noam Chomsky, who you know, he says, says stuff like how the, the rich and powerful, they don't want a capitalist system. They actually want to be able to run the what he calls the nanny state as soon as they're in trouble and get just bailed out by the taxpayer like they did back in 2009, all the billions of dollars they got or there recently, you know. So Robert Reich actually calls this the corporate welfare. So the handouts are going to companies like, you know, other ones like GM and all these other companies. So not the people who actually need it. And around 
what is it, 60% of American wealth is now inherited. So, uh, actually, Robert Rice talks about this in a great short video. So, I'll, I'll try and leave an embedded that on the, on the, the transcript of this, of this episode. So, of course, uh, the corporate welfare happened all over again there recently, as I was saying, of the, you know, the coronavirus, when a fraction of the money went to the people most in need and the American working class. Yeah, it was a lot of money, but comparative with uh, the amount that was given out to these huge companies as opposed to mom and pop places, you know, it's all the same same game again, you know. Uh, let's use a crisis to, to steal from the American people. So if the American people, you know, really understood, if everybody had the time to actually understand, if they weren't working two, three jobs, to actually have a dialogue, um, not listening to these monologues on media, how much tax money has been doled out to these corporations as subsidies, uh, or basically socialism, as I mentioned earlier, uh, corporate socialism, uh, or how the tax code has been changed to help corporations, they'd base they'd storm they'd storm Washington in their millions, you know, but they don't understand. Like I said, they just don't have the time, uh, to basically, to even have these conversations, you know, uh, because the masters, uh, what Chomsky calls the masters, they just attack solidarity and. You know, run the regulators and engineer elections. All these, this phraseology and terminology or language that Chomsky uh, um, has for all of this. You know, keeping everyone in line by manufacturing consent and marginalizing people. So, uh, my two, another example on this, or another way of looking at this, would be my two honours degrees that I got in Ireland. And basically how, you know, they were paid for by the, ostensibly by the Irish government and actually by my local government, uh, by the county council, Mead County Council. And, you know, I'll be forever grateful for that. Um, I was the eldest of seven kids and because of being means tested, I was able to get a free education in a country which would be considered extremely poor at the time. And even now, uh, compared to the states here, um right now it's it's still considered like extraordinarily poor compared with the amount of you know gross national profit of of this place and yet uh people here are expected to pay over 50 grand a year for a degree you know if i was to say that to any of my friends in france i actually did once uh, they, they just looked at you it, as if you were lying you know they thought it's like that's not possible how can somebody pay for that so it's insane or you say to somebody in ireland they go they look at you as if you have two heads it's like what so you know and this this is so bizarre like if the richest country in the world can't pay to educate its people when one of the poorest can then there has to be something wrong with that system anyway that's just another personal example um so uh, I want to mention uh, Chomsky again um, because recently he came out with this or was did a documentary interview um, and I think it's really really relevant you know this it was called Requiem for the American Dream uh, with a subheading uh, the 10 principles of concentration of wealth and power so again I've always loved Chomsky and it's a pity he isn't as accepted in the States the way he should be the way I think he should be 
when other inspired academics like say uh, other inspired academics like him like say Joseph Campbell have this huge following and are so uh, they're so available readily available uh, within the consciousness of the country but then Campbell is much more acceptable to the mainstream media and welcome more by American popular culture because he doesn't he doesn't skewer the media um, uh, on its manipulation of the truth like Chomsky would so people who own those companies obviously don't want us to even know Chomsky's name or Americans to know Chomsky's name the Europeans know, know his name really well when I was back in university it's like all my friends used to be talking about if you were doing no matter what they were doing sociology or psychology or whatever uh, subject Chomsky would always come up some way um, but anyway Chomsky explains in this you know in his classic detached fashion and in the most logical way uh, this whole corporate class uh, that I was talking about there just briefly and, and what it's done to the United States the, uh, and how it's created this widespread income inequality and a huge diminishment of democracy it's like being whittled away you know this stick of democracy being just whittled away over time and it, in detail and with, with these wonderful examples he argues his case of of this rich versus poor powerful versus powerless you know ruled by the few or oligarchy versus democracy so he explains how uh, he, he keeps returning to that word masters. It's actually, the quote is masters of mankind. And it actually comes from Adam Smith, uh, who's, who's, you know, called the father of capitalism. Um, so he explains how the masters of mankind have basically dismantled any real remaining opportunity for an immigrant to come to the U.S. and fulfill the, you know, American dream. Uh, like Chomsky's parents did and so many others and where they can become where that immigrant can become socially mobile and get a job and build a middle class house with a car and a driveway and kids going to school to get a good education he says uh, in a documentary there's a quote uh, for most of the population the majority real incomes have almost stagnated for over 30 years the middle class in that sense, that unique American sense, is under severe attack. A significant part of the American dream is class mobility. You're born poor, you work hard, you get rich. The idea that is is possible for everyone to get a decent job, buy a home, get a car, have their children go to school. It's all collapsed. So he outlines these uh, like I was saying with, with the head in there uh, there's 10 principles to show exactly what the few at the top have been up to uh, practicing what uh, Adam Smith again called the vile maxim of the masters of mankind which is all for ourselves and none for other people that oligarchic way of looking at things you know and then these masters they don't like democracy because it gives power to the people so they reduce democracy and then shape ideology to redesign the economy and Chomsky talks about how they shift the burden of the financial problems then down to the masses yeah, by, you know, taking advantage of uh, chaos or wars or, you know, 
major crises like recessions. So they attack solidarity and then, as I was saying before, you know, they run the regulators and engineer elections, just buy them basically. They keep the rabble in line and they do that by manufacturing the consent, i.e. the media and marginalizing people, just marginalizing different populations from uh, the dialogue, you know. So I suppose I suppose the only word they are not used as much in American English is uh, solidarity. Uh, it's not a word that I used to always really hear about in Ireland, and I hardly ever hear about it here. Um, it's used a lot in France, though. But what Chomsky means um, is having empathy for other people, just caring for them. What uh, an Irish politician once said: "The tide that lifts all ships." You know, this idea of that we're all in this together and if we all pull together, you know, the tide will bring us all up together. And of course, the rabble that he talks about is is the coordinated multiple decades long effort by corporations to destroy this movement, this this rise of all ships in, you know, essentially destroying the labor movements or unions and stuff, you know, where there's power uh, by the people to. Uh, effectuate change you know so power has become so concentrated that banks are just too big to fail you know I hear this again and again and they become you know what some economists would call oh too big to jail you know so Enron was crammed full of these like ingeniously creative lawyers and accountants you know and military torturers bomb and missile makers to say nothing of Ponzi scheme inventors who all all this, all these guys, you know, they all feel very good about what they they've created, you know, you know, until they're exposed, that is, and are sent off to the big house where they belong, if at all, you know. When they do get sent off, they get, you know, reduced sentences, you know, because of the pull they have, and and you know, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, Vonnegut uh, refers to these kind of people or individuals as PPs. Uh, in his book uh, Man Without a Country which I've referenced before in a different episode but you know I better let uh, uh, Vonnegut speak uh, or or say it in a, it's this great section of the book you know and he, he gets it he really gets it I feel so uh, here's the piece uh, I was once asked if I had any ideas for a really scary reality TV show I have one reality show that would really make your hair stand on end see students from Yale George W. Bush has gathered around him upper crust sea students who know no history or geography, plus not so closeted white supremacists, aka Christians, and plus, most frighteningly, frighteningly, uh, psychopathic personalities or PPs, the medical term for smart, personable people who have no consciences. So to say somebody is a PP is to make a perfectly respectable diagnosis, like saying he or she has appendicitis or athlete's fault. PPs are presentable. They know full well the suffering their actions may cause others, but they do not care. They cannot care because they are nuts. They have a screw loose. So many of these heartless PPs now hold big jobs in our federal government, as though they were leaders instead of sick. They have taken charge of communications and schools, so we might as well be be Poland under occupation. They might have felt 
that taking our country into an endless war was simply something de decisive to do. What has allowed so many PPs to rise so high in corporations and now in government is that they're so decisive. They are going to do something every fucking day and they are not afraid. Unlike normal people, they are never filled with doubts for the simple reasons that they don't give a fuck what happens next. Simply can't. Do this, do that, mobilize the reserves, mobilize the reserves, privatize the public schools, attack Iraq, cut healthcare, tap everybody's telephone, cut taxes on the rich, build a trillion dollar missile shield, fuck habeas corpus and the Sierra Club, and in these times, and kiss my ass. This is a tragic flaw in our precious constitution, and I don't know what can be done to fix it. This is it. Only nutcases want to be president. So, Vonnegut wrote that passage nearly a decade and a half ago. I can only imagine what he'd have to say about the president administration of Donald Trump. Of course, you know, most of the X, Y, millennial and Z generations are aware of what Chomsky and you know, Vonnegut has to say that 1% of the 1% of the population own most of the assets of the planet. And that the 1% of the 1% want to keep it that way. And the last thing they want to do is share that wealth. The boomer generation and older generation, for the most part, are quite cynical about this. I've had people I love tell me that the only choice we have is either capitalism or socialism. Um, nothing about democratic socialism or some uh, via media between all of these ideas so they're just incapable of even imagining a distinction between socialism and democracy as concepts and capitalism as something divorced f from ways of government you know it's a, their viewpoint is that you're either a capitalist or you're a socialist and then socialists like associate with being a communist or like I was saying earlier, this kind of failed uh, Russian regime, you know. So this binary way of thinking has been created by the 1% of the 1% because it works out very well for them, you know, pitting one person against another. So if you don't like documentaries, there's also the book version of Chomsky's documentary, which goes into the concepts more fully, but, but still in a very clear and simple way. Uh, so... There's so there's simply no arguing with the logic of it either. It's simply facts he presents, and just how it's all engineered. And it's very clear. So, um, so the problem here is that it's not simply an American problem. You know, capitalism is a planetary problem. You know, my experience growing up in Ireland or living in France and visiting many other European countries is that the same structures exist everywhere. The social classes are hidden in different ways, but if we analyze them a little, we see that you know there are regurgitations of the same structures because people who own multinational corporations they don't have borders when it comes to getting taxed or vetted, you know. So, like in Spain or France or Italy or Portugal or or Greece, it's simply not enough today to have a full time job and and not be poor. You know, many salaries are about a thousand euros over in Europe, and others think they're doing well when they 
they've got 1,500 euros a month, but this barely pays for the rent or schooling or all the other fixed costs. Never mind having an extra to save or invest or spend on a spend on a holiday. And this was before coronavirus, you know. So we're always taught to believe the poor were are street beggars, but now it's people with full-time work. And, you know, if you take one of those countries, for example, Greece, you know, this insane inequality led to the collapse of the system and the rise of a new left uh, in the par- in that party, uh, Syriza. So capitalism not only wrecks democracy, you know, as the former finance minister of Greece, who, who was in that party, uh, Syriza, Yanis Varoukakis, uh, he says it, you know, um, it also wreck, wrecks the, the democracy of creativity, uh, the democracy of access and confidence in what we create. So these entrenched systems are not what they appear to be. The idea that not everyone has access to creation has been heightened by capitalist governments because representative democracy itself has never actually really existed, even in ancient Greek times. You know, Yanis Varoukakis left government because the institutions, you know, oligarchic, not dem- democratic in his country, you know, the birthplace of so-called democracy, democratis, um, under the pressure of, like, authoritarian German-led European Union, told him he had no choice. Like, even with a mandate from the, all of the Greek people not to do the whole austerity thing, his compatriots, even his, his compatriots in his party were co-opted into going against him and supporting the EU and this is all him this is not my opinion on it this is what he said and he was in it so inevitably as Farrakakis has said these powerful leaders were were not powerful at all they were simply doing the bidding of the system and the system we all live in is is under his uh, capitalism it's not representative democracy because when someone uses those words, those two words, they're really saying that extreme centrist, you know, li- li- neoliberal politics of division. There's that word again, you know, it's like division, like divide and conquer. Like I mentioned uh, in the first episode of the podcast. And and so what does this division do? You know, it, it, it creates this constantly fighting binary world where real democracy is taken away with attrition you know it's gradually whittling away like that stick again oh it's gradually whittling away on on the imagination and and inspiration for you know inverted common investors at the expense of the many you know so uh we give we give power um to this oligarchy this this one percent of one percent when we agree they they are the ones with the power and we can take that power back when we say we have the right to create the reality we we live in. And that reality becomes manifest as soon as we wake up and realize that the old paradigm is no longer, you know, an, an agreement that we, we accept. Because nobody can tell you to accept an agreement, you know, you never agreed upon. So creation needs to be more democratic there needs to be more access but this goes against capitalism's very nature you know but how can we democratize creativity so everyone has equal access well you know someone like gandhi was told he had no power to create a new india 
as he put it, he became the change he wanted to see in the world. He created it. You know, and like here in the States, Martin Luther King was told he had no power to create a different reality than the one he was living in. He created one anyway. So this idea that money is how we define ourselves is not only bizarre, but, but only benefits the few who want power over us. You know, us, the, the many. So if you if you were a person living on another planet and you, you landed on Earth, you'd be shocked by this reality. You can imagine some of the questions that, you know, these these other beings would, would ask. You know, it's like, why are all these people starving when, when there's so much food around? Or, you know, stuff like your earth, uh, you know, has more, more than enough resources for everyone on the planet to eat and be housed. Well, why why aren't they? Or, or um, you know, the earth is the earth. Uh, how can you, you buy it with paper you created from the earth? You know, it's a kind of Native American, very Native American way of looking at it. And it makes complete sense. So a lot of the indi- indigenous um peoples of the world would would look at it like that you know how can you buy it with paper the paper that came from the earth it it makes no sense but this is what we live under here i'll give you this piece of paper and now it's not even a piece of paper it's just all electronic it's all an idea so you know um but we we just keep doing it, you know, we keep continuing. We're enslaved by other men's systems, you know, as Blake put it all those years ago. In a marriage of heaven and hell, you know, it's a favourite quote of mine. I must create a new system or be ensla- or else be enslaved by another man's. So we're conditioned from an early age to accept this reality. Uh, we're educated, you know, throughout uh, our schooling to embrace this this paradigm you know we're taught money is the end goal and that success is only reflected when we've amassed vast amounts of it you know so at one retreat nine years ago um we were on this on the terrace with our with our residents you know the writers and artists and one man an englishman he'd been living in italy for about 25 years he took a deep sigh of relief and interrupted the flow of conversation and he just said, like, can I say what a huge relief it is? That's what he's saying. Uh, for um, for once, uh, it's so nice to be in a group of new people and not have to explain why I would remain a waiter for 25 years just to keep writing my novel without ever having published a word. And he took this huge sign and he went, I was so relieved. So we all started clapping and laughed and cheered, you know. And this is what the system that we're in, you know. Uh, so his book, his actual book that he worked on at the music, got published the next year, which was great, you know, for him. Um, but creation has been, um, it's just been replaced by consumption, you know. We consume instead of creating. It's kind of like replacement therapy. But then, you know, ter- therapy is supposed to be beneficial to the individual, not destructive or addictive. You know, and we buy too much. We call it retail therapy, thinking this is like some kind of funny phrase when actually it's a symptom of the problem, you know. Instead of creating clothes for ourselves, instead of 
crocheting or stitching or mending we buy clothes you know my granny used to mend everything um they used to knit the irish irish men used to sew you know and mend their own socks you know but we that's disappeared now we buy clothes made by underpaid workers working long hours in countries thousands of miles away you know we buy these people's creations and soon lose interest in them and they fall apart because they're made out of crap and we throw them away only to replace them with even more you know so so the creation itself has been you know it's 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 been replaced by addictions by by spending you know we buy too many clothes drugs alcohol sex objects devices and and we only have to look at the reality shows to see how we hoard. You know, there's that woman, uh, that Japanese, I think she's Japanese, Mar- Maria Kondo, Marie Kondo, uh, this recent uh, reality show type thing. Uh, and she talks about how people are, it doesn't talk about it, but just shows how addicted people are. Um, and, you know, she has this very simple question uh, when she takes a piece of clothing and says, does this spark joy for you? And if not, then then why is it in your closet? And for most people, this is this is a bleeding revelation, you know. And how could I have had so much stuff? You know, they see all the stuff that they just didn't need. And why is something so simple, uh, something so simple as that, such an epiphany? And again, it goes back to this, this systemic uh, conditioning, you know. Capitalism's just so pervasive. We don't even think about how we become so addicted um to just buying creativity as opposed to you know expressing it and that's exactly how capitalism works you don't grow your own food buy it don't mend an old car buy a new one you know don't take care of your health buy pills to get rid of the symptoms of your physical pain you know so there's all these you know don't make your own clothes like my grandmother used to do buy more and don't express yourself through art do it by what you wear what you buy oh that's how you're supposed to be creative yeah well you're not actually doing that somebody else did it and created it and it's nice to be creative in what you wear and be colorful and be different in how you express how you look and all that but you know wouldn't it be nice to create something to put on yourself to express that difference too like they did in the punk generation and for a year or two anyway but um so society kind of, you know, it denies creation um, and it transfers these negative ideas onto us, onto the individual. And when an individual is, a, it's, it's an illusion if we consider the fact that we're social beings, you know, and and it, and it projects these subliminal, you know, negative associations on creation because being a creator means thinking outside the norms and the rules and regulations. And to, you know, encourage people to help each other create goes against elitism and capitalism and and this idea of frontierism uh, like they have here in the states or this rugged individualism you know this kind of instagram let's look at the body and it's all about me as an individual Uh, because you know those ideas are about competition and uh, that idea of rugged individualism is you know let's be competitive uh, and it's uh, this kind of sociopathic uh, economics, you know. So most contemporary societies are based on this principle because governments are, for the most part, you know, owned. And, you know, this is not some kind of conspiracy theory. It's just a fact. Um, 
it's documented in many books you know Chomsky's written nearly a hundred books and I think about half of them are about that and you know so these multinational corporations uh, through donating to politicians and their campaigns you know to create policy that basically makes the government owned you know they go in and out through these revolving doors from government into the boards of corporations it's all very well documented you know it's not negative it's just a reality it is negative a negative reality but it's not being negative by pointing it out where a lot of people would think it's oh you're being all negative but it's it's actually just a reality it's just or an observation it's just facts so success under this worldview depends on you know taking advantage of those around you to get more and not to help others not to be you know solidarity like i was talking before about so it's all for me and who cares about anyone else that kind of adam smith quote again so um so this myth of the successful businessman this this businessman who's you know some kind of deity is just that it's 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 a, it's a myth we're all god you know um what about you know the successful plumber or a successful teacher or a successful musician or or even better again like a successful mother you know um you know and don't get me wrong i've met lots of smart and creative business people you know res residents that came to lemuse and not all business people are sociopaths or pps as as, as vonnegut put it but when those business people and successful entrepreneurs came to lemuse they they weren't there to write creative business plans or think up new schemes for defrauding their clients. They were there precisely to get away from all that, you know, to try and discover or tap into something authentically creative. So, you know, and in addition to that, um, you, could, you could be jealous of this successful group in your field, which is attached to one of the, these pri the again, the primary tenets of capitalism uh, competition. And I used to look at the bios of other writers, and I was saying that in the last episode, you know, and judge my own success uh, compared to theirs, which is ridiculous. Um, as the only only value we, we should have is internal, not not external. Or, you know, uh, how do you feel inside? No, not how do you feel about how you look outside and comparing yourself to others. So, this... This inner conflict about success, you know, acclaim, whether it's critical or financial, uh, it doesn't mean I cannot be critical of capitalism while seeming to admire those who've made it. You know, I admire their focus, their hard work, their tenacity. And I think it's important to hold two, to be able to hold two conflicting truths at the same time. You know, what F... Scott Fitzgerald talked about it at the beginning of the crack-up, you know, how a good mind should be able to hold two opposing ideas in their mind at the same time, and but at the same time still be able to function. Um, how things can be hopeless, yet we can be determined to create a different reality anyway. So being able to see both sides of an argument is contradictory and difficult, and... And again, I honour the success in commas of people in their fields, but at the same time, I don't respect the way capitalism forces assumptions onto successful people uh, because they are successful. Just because one is successful doesn't mean one human being is better than another.
you know and we can get quite drunk on this idea of success as capital and we 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 you know we have to change this you know to change our our mentality our way of looking at this so instead of success equals value we have to understand that success equals doing what you love because and it's not many people that can do what they love you know but if you can do what you love even if it's just part of the time well that's get getting to a, po- a place where you know you'll be a happier human being because if you're doing what you love that's inevitably what will you make you happy you know happiness being this fleeting thing but doing what you love puts you into that flow state which i'll talk about a little bit later so so this this idea that your value is not your house or your car or you know this instagram thing of your body parts you know it's about the value you place on living from doing what you love so this your 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 internal sense of value so you know most of the residents who go to lemuse aren't aren't making you know money full-time from their art a lot of them have uh, day jobs you know but they they look forward to spending the time away from that capitalist world to create and many of them don't shop they don't go to movies or restaurants so that they can save to get away to create what they love so you know and the most joyful creators i've ever met have been people with the least material affluence um and why are they joyful well it's acceptance and doing what they love out of love not money you know uh they're joyful because they see creating itself as a success in its in its own right um so you know it's the process of it that they love and the process is what creates harmony inside them so as as creators our goal can't be the money you know we need to be busy getting inspired and creating the whole business part of creation is to be considered yes but but it's actually not until we're finished creating something i'll talk about that a little bit later on you know so um and you know um when we talk about capital and value um you know it's not just monetary capital you know we have to start understanding that um you know it's what the there's a french uh, sociologist called pierre bourdieu uh, and he wrote that he wrote this about this about cultural capital um which is basically education and he basically said that a, a creator's natural talent and work ethic is affected by how much money their parents and relations etc you know uh, how much they have and his question was how can we create when we're always poor and how can we understand certain creations when we don't have the cultural capital to understand them you know so we all suffer for our art when we come from socioeconomic backgrounds that can't support our efforts to create and some people inherit wealth and some people get lucky early on and others after a long career doing something else start to create what they love but the most important thing is just to remember uh, uh, is perseverance, which is a lot easier when you're doing what you love. So, you know, competition, again, can it can destroy your inspiration, your work ethic and your focus, your imagination. And, you know, if you just watch, you know, uh, Amadeus, Milos Formans, uh, Amadeus, you know, Soleri basically destroyed himself by comparing his work to Mozart. Um, and, you know, there's artist combinations of people like Freud and Bacon or uh, 
you know, Matisse and Picasso or Manet and uh, Degas or Pollock and um, de Kooning, you know, where they were all often destructively competitive. Even if some would say this competition helped them develop as creators. But, um, you know, so this idea if you don't win prizes and don't earn lots of money, uh, you're a failure. Like uh, this idea of a Sunday artist, um, a poor poet, you know, a dabbler, you know. Uh, recognition's not judged in the value or the wonder of your creation or the process but in whether it has won these sanctioned recognition and prizes or a competition there's that word again you know uh, fellowships or venture capital or reviews or a tv spot or something like that you know it has to you know it has to go back to uh, doing what you love that's value and uh, the intrinsic internal value inside makes you feel good inside so the fact that each creation can be so different from another, you know, never enters um, into this like capitalistic or competitive worldview. Different people like different things. So, you know, seriously, how can found objects and say uh, collage be compared to a huge landscape of cows in a field? You know, it's like comparing a tiny factory in New Guinea to a, a Wall Street firm or something, you know. So you can't judge one compared to another. So comparison and competition in creation can only, you know, can only lead to um, despair. You know, so competition generates and thrives on anger and bitterness. These kind of emotions that are not healthy. They're, you know, they're making more money than us, or they're making more money than me. They're, they're getting more recognition than us. Um, or to get more more recognition to me, you know this idea. That, but anger and bitterness don't inspire good work. You know, they they might get you started on something, but it becomes too. If you obsess over it, becomes uh, it destroys innovation and curiosity and inspiration. It just destroys creation. So I suppose you know. Consumption and production are this idea of produ producer and consumer. We, we we have to adapt the consumer producer model and empower the creator creative model as such. Because if if you do the work, the reward will be in the doing. So we have to focus on the joy of the process of creation, like right now. Um, and we have in our heart what it is to be happy right now. We just need to keep our eyes on our own work, our own creation. And not compete with others or look for validation from a culture, you know, a system that only pays off for for a tiny few, or, albeit elites or those that are lucky or those, you know, that hit it, you know, irrespective of whenever. You know, there's a great example of that, um, uh, the wonderful Jacques Brel. He was once asked uh, about a beautiful song he wrote. Um, and he respond. He responded, "Yeah, yes, uh, it's Bell. You know, it's beautiful now." Because uh, and then when asked why he said uh, said that, um, why well, it's beautiful now, he he explained that it was only accepted as beautiful when it became famous. You know, when it made money. Before that, he said uh, it was a bad song to the majority of critics. 
But when people started buying his music, when he started making money, then he was successful. But not before. So each song is successful depending on how much money it has made from that, you know, capitalist perspective. So Brel said nothing about the song had changed. He said it was beautiful before and after it became a success. So also um, Brel is another example of a creator who, who didn't just do music, you know. He, was, he wasn't just one thing, you know. We don't just create from one perspective. Um, that your one again value is you are this uh, he was also a successful actor and he you know he appeared in about 10 movies and but he didn't stop there either he directed two films too and i suppose would have directed many more if he hadn't died when he was about 49 and you know so this idea that we are one thing or you know you are a plumber but you're not a creator or you are a um teacher but you're not an artist you know we we are um we're multiple you know uh we are multiple things we're not just one thing so you know capitalism again uh doesn't want us to think like this you want to be uh the cog in the wheel you know one thing it knows um no limits in its destruction of you know we shouldn't be limited um but it has no limits when it's when you're talking about destruction of ethical or creative ways of living you know even even babies one of the ultimate creative processes a human being can engage in is you know that's been commodified and and you know how the hell can this be how can we capitalize on on one of the most creative acts in life like where's the spirit you know the human being in all this and you know i'm just asking questions here you know they they're they're hard questions um, like isn't surrogacy exploiting women uh, in the most part presumably poor or marginalized women who are paid to have children you know it's a generalization but you know if you think about it that's basically contract capitalism and a baby has become a thing uh, an object not a created being so where's the line between buying and selling children you know does all creation have to be capitalized upon you know so there's these extremes that that we go to without fully diagnosing or, or examining what it is that's going on around us it's just become so part of our system our way of of being in the world and um, these things that are just normalized so how do we how do we stop you know mourning the wrongdoings of these these masters that chomsky describes and how do we start reenacting the parts of our infrastructures that were healthy and productive in the past? Um, so, yeah, I think it's by becoming active, but also by being creative, irrespective of the conditions we've been obliged obliged to live under. And, you know, actually at the end of his documentary and his book, Chomsky recalls um, a good friend of his, Another wonderful writer, um, Howard Zinn's Reflection. Uh, what matters most are the countless small deeds of unknown people who lay the basis for the significant events that enter history. So, and if you haven't read his wonderful book, uh, A People's History of the United States, you should uh, I'd recommend it because it's full of stories of people laying a basis for significant events. 
uh, you know, to enter into history. You know, which is kind of like, um, you know, there's a quote attributed to Margaret Mead, you know, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Um, and like like Chomsky and Zinn, I'm, I'm an optimist about it. I, I trust that the arc of history, uh, I think that's a, um, a reference to uh, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, this arc of history, or perhaps it was Kennedy. Uh, but anyway, this I trust the arc of history to, to bend toward justice, even, even amidst all this capitalistic injustice and madness that's going on now. But an individual politician or some public intellectual is not going to make things change, you know, or change things. Movements, movement, movements move things, you know. That's what it is. It's what the word means. So my movement is towards creativity or towards the imagination. So to create is to create a real popular movement. So the more of us that become more creative, the more that will become a movement, which goes against this what I uh, that quote at the very outset, you know, um, creative destruction. What I referenced to it, um, somebody like Hitler really en enjoyed that idea, destroying books, destroying creativity, because he was a failed artist himself. But this idea that we need to create a real popular movement around creativity, you know, we need a um, this some kind of a creative uprising. You know, not elected officials of art and writing and sculpture. So the civil rights movement did this, and labor solidarity and uh, unrest in, in this country and many other countries did that. So even the Occupy movement tried to do it, and Black, you know, Black Lives Matter is trying to do it right now here in the United States. And then internationally, people are taking a, a knee. That's a creative act, you know, to, to go against the system. Um, and they were and are creative movements. So they react against these, this capitalistic culture of class. Uh, they step outside, literally, into the streets of our consciousness and create a new dream, as 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 Mr. King, as, as Martin Luther King said in his famous speech. So each one of us, you know, can become part of a creative movement if we fight against this idea of powerlessness that capitalism wants us to feel. Because behind apathy is a great potential, you know, to create. I really, I really trust that. So, um, at the very beginning of this podcast, I quoted the wonderful Stefan Hessel in the second episode. And he had a quote, and I'm going to repeat it right now. Uh, it's, to create is to resist. To resist is to create. So... Again, you know, to create is to resist. To resist is to create. So when we, we create, we resist the capitalist modus operandi of society. You know, we resist what we are told we are, uh, what we're supposed to be, what we ought to be, and become who we are. Um, by resisting, we are being creative beings. Uh, one of the most powerful things there is to be, uh, to be actually not just a human being, but a creative being, which is... I suppose, um, a higher um, idea of what it is to be a human being. So, um, Ursula K. Le Guin again, you know, I've 
I've cited her many, a few times before as well, wonderful American writer. She talks about resistance too. It's like at the end of a, a well-known short speech, speech of hers called Freedom when she was accepting the National Book Foundation Medal um, for, you know, distinguished contribution to American letters. It was back in uh, 2014, uh, which can be found in, in it's in video online and in our wonderful uh, or in her wonderful book, uh, Words Are My Matter, which I've cited before. So, so she had this to say, she says, uh, you know, books aren't just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. But then, so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changes by human beings resistance and change often begin in art very often in our art the art of words the name of our beautiful reward isn't profit its name is freedom so understand capitalism for what it is you know the greatest wall there is to the imagination and leading a creative life so if we accept it this reality and then resist it by creating this courage to create um, we can glean the most beautiful rewards um, freedom so thanks for listening uh, I started with a quote from an, uh, an Austrian economist and as usual I'm going to end with an Irish proverb uh, one which rhymes in both English and Irish uh, and this one literally translate as better health than wealth, which is uh, kind of appropriate to to this uh, episode. You know, is far on schlanta non atonja. Is far on schlanta non atonja. So the, this podcast is supported by you, um, whoever you are listening. Uh, on a Patreon page, uh, it's patreon.com uh, forward slash John Fanning. And I'll put this out earlier the day before, and I'm going to try and get extra episodes up there uh, to give you value, <laughs> but hopefully creative value as opposed to just, you know, bang for your book, um, that idea. And if you can afford to uh, support it, that'd be great. But if you can't, then please subscribe or leave a a review on Amazon or wherever it is that you listen to it or just let other people know about it you know if you think it's relevant to people you know um, irrespective of their creators or not just tell them about you know specific episodes and then they might want to go back to visit other ones so and if you want to do any of that social stuff as always say uh, you know Instagram and all that uh, johnfanning.me that's the website so it's been great sharing stuff uh, today. Sorry it's so long, this one. Um, hopefully you were able to listen to the end. And until next time, when I'll start going into doors um, and uh, the idea of moving towards creativity and the imagination. So take care of yourself out there and try to be benevolent when you can. Schlan live, August Gennari and Bauer live.